We love you today. Thank you for these wonderful students. Thank you for their calling. Thank you for carrying them through the seasons of their life to bring them to this point. Thank you for all the wonderful things you have in this store in, in store for them in this age and in the age to come. We love you and bless you today. We pray that you anoint the preaching of the word and our hearing of the word, that those present in this building, that those listening online, that those who may be listening even years from now as they catch the podcast, they, they will hear the word of God being spoken directly to their spirit, and they will receive impartation from it. Uh, we pray all this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to continue our study, the Pentecostal Handbook, Acts 14, with Pastor Joe. All right. Brother, love you, man. Boom. <laughs> well, that was fun. Well, today we are going to learn in the Pentecostal handbook the concept of revival or riot. Everybody say revival or riot. Thank you. As a, the gospel moves forward in the new regions, we're going to see sometimes they like it, sometimes they hate it, sometimes they do both. We'll see that when they do this, uh, revival or riot, one thing is for sure, the people know the gospel is in town. Okay, so we shouldn't go unnoticed. That would be the worst thing that would happen for a church being in a community, that it would go unnoticed. And we'll see that sometimes they're persecuted, sometimes there's revival, but despite the ups and downs of ministry, the disciples were faithful to preach, pray, and plug away. Everybody say, preach, pray, and plug away. Thank you. That's an oldie but goodie. Here's the map. They're wrapping up the last part of the first missionary journey that Paul was on. They started in Antioch. They went to Salamis, Paphos, Attilia, Pergia, there to Antioch, Poseidon, to Lystra, Derbe is where we're going to Derby today. And then they're going to head back and strengthen the churches and then uh, take that uh, route from uh, uh, Antilia, Attilia right back to Antioch and skip going through the island. But up there, they're going to kind of reroute and go back the same way they came. And so that started at the beginning of uh, Acts chapter 13 and ends now in Acts chapter 14. So at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. That was their habit, was to start with the Jews as Jesus taught, and then to go to the Gentiles. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of the Jews in Greek and Greeks uh, believed. And so here is the responsibility for us. Uh, takeaway here is that we have to speak effectively. Study yourself full to preach yourself empty. You have to know the word. You have to know it inside and out. You have to be ready to go with people's questions and the things that they're going to have uh, brought up that come natural to them. And that's how you want to think as a speaker is what's coming to the people even before they ask the question. So while I'm lecturing, I'm always trying to think of the questions that they may be thinking. And sometimes um, not even trying, I'm a little bit theatrical and I'll make voices to what they're thinking. If you notice that, I'll kind of go into a voice and I'll be like, oh, you're thinking this or, or I'll make fun of a uh, another kind of uh, mindset. And then sometimes I, I do it on purpose to get across the point, but the, the bottom line is we want to speak effectively, answer questions while they're coming into the people's hearts, and be ready to uh, take the Bible, uh, take the people on a trip through the Bible to expose the truth to them. So this shows us that the preacher has a responsibility to preach the word in excellence. Does everybody get that? Okay, and that's why you're here being taught the word in Bible college. And it says a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. So they were not only in the synagogue, but that's what they would go, and then they would probably speak to the God-fearing Gentiles there, and then as they were in the, uh, the community speaking to both Jews and Greeks. But verse 2 says, But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. 
Here is another uh, indication that this is not the Reformed handbook. This is the Pentecostal handbook, which is a non-Calvinistic worldview. See, here it says the reason why the problems start is because these people refuse to believe. It's not that God hardened their heart. It's not that he handed them over to rep- uh, retro, um, uh, excuse me, let me say it here, ret- uh, reprobation. There we go. Repro was the word I needed. There. Reprobation. Uh, he didn't hand them over to something in this sense. He's letting them make their own choice, okay? So at, at another time, they may get handed over, and we talk about this in the Bible as the hard heart of Pharaoh and so forth. But right here, it is not because God has made them a reprobate. It's not because God has forsaken them and has chosen the elect and the verse prior who give their heart to Jesus. No, this is the choice of the hearer to make that decision. They refuse to believe. And so we as uh, good Arminians, uh, our Armenians, not Armenians, but Arminians with an I, Arminians, uh, we believe in prevenient grace. So we believe that like the Calvinists, we are all born sinful by nature, deserving of wrath, heading towards by default the path of hell. But it's God's grace that initiates the awakening in our heart to choose or to resist. So it is prevenient preceding the gospel, the Holy Spirit's work. And we see that in John where it says, in him, talking about Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And so the light of the conscience is awakened by the word as it comes preached by the Holy, uh, as it comes preached by the Holy Spirit, and the word is being brought forth. So the, the Holy Spirit said he would convict the world, uh, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. So when we look at the scriptures here, the Holy Spirit brings the Word of God, and the Word of God convicts. Does everybody get that? Holy Spirit brings the Word of God, and the Word of God convicts, and we call that prevenient grace. So that is the answer that we have to the total depravity of the Calvinists. So the Calvinists would say, you're so depraved that unless God regenerates you first, you cannot believe. So it literally is putting the cart before the horse. Who believes? Those who are born again. So if you're not born again first, you can't believe. They believe born again comes before believing. Now, is that the, the way it works in the book of John? Not in John anywhere, especially not in John chapter 3. You believe first. You believe, and then you're born again. That's how it works. So here it says they refuse to believe. So the choice is on them as their heart is being awakened, as the light is coming. They're refusing to come into the light, as the Bible says, lest their deeds be exposed. So they're staying in darkness. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now watch this as well. Because these people refuse the truth, they now are acting as agents of deception to the other people. Now the other people believe them. Now they are deceived. Can you be deceived if you believe the truth? 
No. So they have to make a choice, in other words, to be deceived. Yes, I have compassion on those who are deceived. And there are so many out there right now of false prophets, as the Bible said, would come. And I was showing my wife some of them, and she just couldn't even believe them. Uh, there's a, a woman that believes she channels a person 35,000 years old, and his name is Ramtha. And by channeling Ramtha, she teaches all the New Age wisdom. She's been doing this since the 70s. She has about 1,000 followers. They fill up this barn in, in Arizona. She has millions of dollars. Now, every single person there, I have compassion on them for being deceived. But they had to first be susceptible to deception. And that was what my wife caught while we were there. She said, every one of these people know of Jesus and made a choice not to follow Jesus, and now they're handed over to this kind of a lie. There's the Jesus of Puerto Rico who died, and then his wife said, now my husband upgraded from Jesus to the Father, and now I became Jesus, and now you can literally go to the website, Christisafemale.com, and that is her heresy, is that now Christ is a female. And she points to the scriptures of, of O Jerusalem, how I wish to gather you in. That's one of her main scriptures as a mother hen. So Christ is a female. And the level of deception is just so, so just gross and disgusting. We all look at it going, how in the world? The guy who once used to claim to be Jesus, and he was the one getting all the 666 tattoos, he actually embraced the title Antichrist and said that was another Christ in a good way. Your mouth is just like, like this right now. Yeah, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah, but it's very true. But then when he dies, now they have to come up with another story. So now she's the Christ, and he upgrades to Melchizedek, and, and, and the father in one sense. And so my wife, once again, is like, these people know Jesus. So by them refusing to believe the truth, they now accept a lie. And so these people are being belie uh, believing the ones who are refusing to believe the truth. They're believing them now because of the same refusal. So a deception only works on those who can be deceived. I can never be deceived that 2 plus 2 is 5 because I know the truth that it's 4. When you know the truth of who Jesus is, you cannot be deceived by these kind of lies. Amen? Can I hear an amen? So don't be afraid of being deceived. When you know the truth, there's nothing to be afraid of. The truth will make you free. Verse 3, so Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. I don't have it here because I've mentioned it a few times and I think you guys get it now. Where is that? Where else is that found in the Synoptic Gospels? Where is that found? That the Lord confirmed the word with signs following. No, where is it found? I've mentioned it a few times. Now I'm regretting not putting it here. You should know right off the top of your head. That's literally what, what it says in the passage, that he confirmed the word. You don't remember that? Okay, well, let's go to it, Mark 16. Mark 16 at the ending, and now I'll make sure anytime it says that the word is being confirmed, I'll make sure to put it in there. But uh, you guys have to do better at remembering these things, okay? Mark 16, verse 20 says, Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. And here you see that same language coming from Luke because he knows that this is a part of the gospel. That's why we believe this is the Pentecostal handbook. This is why it's not the Baptist handbook, because the Pentecostals are actually the ones preaching, believing that God confirms his word with signs and wonders following. And that's what it says, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. Moving on to verse 4, the people of the city were divided. 
Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. Now, I want you to note here the apostles. I thought Paul was the only apostle on this journey. Hmm, what does that mean if it's plural? That must mean that Barnabas is also an apostle, right? We'll get to Acts 14, 14 in just a moment, but notice that. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it, talking about the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, and fled to Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country. That's where we get cities in regions. Okay, Lyconian is a region, as we see right here on the map, along with Galatia. And when Paul writes his letter to the Galatians, it is including all of these regions over here because Galatia and Lyconia are kind of in the same area. And then there's Pisidia, Pamphylia, Pergia, uh, Cappadocia, Sicilia. These are all regions, and they would have their territories move and, and change all the time. But uh, like I said, when he writes Galatians, which is going to be his first book right here, probably during this time we're reading right now, before the Council of Jerusalem, uh, all of this is, is, is going to go to them. So all that, we're, uh, uh, all that you would learn, rather, in the book of Galatians would be relatable to all of these cities here. So you're learning who the audience of Galatians was, okay? Now let's keep going. There was a plot afoot. They move on to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derba, to the surrounding country, where they continue to preach the gospel. What are they preaching? The gospel. So that's what we should be good at. Why is it I listen to messages all the time and I don't hear the gospel? We need to be gospel-centered. Pentecostals ought to be gospel-centered. Every single time you come into a service of a Pentecostal, you ought to hear the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and how he is our Savior, okay, and how he expects us to live and the plans he has for us. That should be a part of our everyday life. Now, in Lystra, there sat a man who was lame, who had been that way from birth and had never worked. He had listened to Paul, and as he was speaking, Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed and then Paul called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the, mo the man jumped up and began to walk. Now, here's where we get the uh, synergistic relationship between the preacher and the people, the pew and the pulpit. As Paul is preaching, he is noticing that this man has faith. Now, how would he be able to do that? What gift would give him the ability to discern whether or not the man had faith? Discerning of what? Never say just the gift of discernment. There is not one mentioned that way. It is the discerning of spirits. So the man has a spirit, doesn't he? The man is a spirit in a body, in other words. And so Paul discerns his spirit that he has faith. That was a spiritual gift, a message that came to him as he was discerning the man's spirit. Now, does this mean that every time we pray for people and they don't get healed, does this mean they don't have faith and so we should blame them for the lack of the miracle? So we should say to the crippled person, you're still crippled because I don't discern you have faith in your spirit. No, because the Bible says that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Did Jesus discern that Lazarus had a spirit of faith? <laughs> no, he was dead. How much did Lazarus contribute to the miracle? Nothing. But here, a man is contributing, isn't he? He's contributing his belief. He's saying, I believe. So the woman with the issue of blood is like this as well. Is Jesus at that moment praying for the woman with the issue of blood? And when she gets healed? No. It's her faith that healed her. It's your faith that healed you and made you well. That's what he says to her. Is, it, is that not what happened? So what we see is that sometimes the preacher's faith, like the resurrection of the dead, or when Jesus prays for the, the boy who casts himself into the fire, I mean, there's nothing that he can do to 
to contribute to that. Jesus takes all of the responsibility. Then there's other times when people are touching Jesus with faith and coming even just to be under the shadows of the apostles, as we learned before, and they're being healed, and the people there have no um, no recollection of them touching them or, or, or coming out with the shadow. There's, there's no recognition, in other words, of them praying for that person. They're not recognizing that person. The person is recognizing the faith that God can use that person in their life. So sometimes it's on the person. Sometimes it's on the, uh, the one praying. Now, what do we say when someone doesn't get healed? We can say your faith, my faith. Either way, let's both increase in our faith. Now, some people would, would like to say, well, we've prayed. Now we can just say that it's not God's will. I'm never going to do that. I'm not going to do that, and I'll never do that. I'm going to believe God, and it's, it's his will to heal all until they die. That's what I'm going to believe. Everyone must die at some point. Then I'll know that was the will of God. After I've prayed over the casting and said, come up, you know, and I do that. I do that. Uh, when I know the person and I feel like God puts it on my heart, I will try to pray for them to rise up because I want to be faithful to what God told us to do. One of the commands was raise the dead. Why should you be afraid to pray for the dead? Maybe God isn't done with them yet, you know. And uh, sometimes we think, well, they've been dead too long. Well, Lazarus was dead over a week. And he was raised from the dead, okay? God is able to do that. So be led by the Spirit. So I am not going to say it's God's will to keep you sick. I'm not going to say that. And I'll even start with myself. I don't think it's God's will for me to wear glasses. I don't think it's God's will for me to have psoriasis, you know, uh, itchy skin. I, I don't think that's God's will. I still believe God for healing. Whenever they say pray, uh, you know, and they're going to pray for healing, you know, believe God for it. You know, touch that area. I'm going to touch uh, my eyes. I'm going to touch my scalp. And I'm going to say I'm healed in Jesus' name. I believe that's his will. And that's what I'm going to do. It's up to you what you want to do. But in this church, we believe that healing was purchased in the atonement. And as surely as we can believe that all sins are forgiven, I can believe that all sicknesses are healed. Now, when people say, why, aren't every, why isn't everybody healed? I do believe it's faith. That's what I believe. It's not the will of God. It's faith. So if you say, are you going to blame the person? No, I will say right off the top, just put the responsibility on me then. Just say it's me. I, I didn't have enough faith for you to be healed. So I'm not going to blame the child. I'm not going to blame the parent. If a child's dying of cancer or something, I, I'm not going to do that. So if they came down to the nitty-gritty, I'll still say it's faith, but then I'll say blame me then. Blame me. Because I will take the responsibility. But here's the thing. I have no condemnation. I don't walk in guilt. Because I will continue to grow in my faith, and God knows where my faith is at, and God knows how to get other people to pray for them. But what I will not do, what I will not do, is say sickness is the will of God. That is my personal conviction. That is what I believe. As long as you believe that healing is in the atonement, you're still in good standing with the doctrines of our church, and that's what we believe. How, how you reconcile they're still being sick people and how people uh, don't always get healed, that's between you and God. I'm just telling you how I reconcile it, and I do it with a clear conscience because I don't see any place in the Bible from front to back where when the person... And the prayer person had faith and the thing wasn't done. Some people may say, well, Paul left, uh, you know, somebody sick. You know, he said, I, I left Trophimus sick. Was it Trophimus? I left him sick in Miletus or something. And then Timothy was also sick, we know. But who did he leave? So-and-so I left sick. Who did Paul leave sick? Uh, I would say increase in your faith. Let us all increase. What's that? What, what was you saying? Yeah, Tychicus. I said Trophimus, but let's see. It's either Trophimus or Tychicus. Yes, there we go. I get the, uh, the star next to my name. Trophimus. So Trophimus was left sick. But, that, but once again, I'm not going to say that's the will of God. 
And the best argument that the cessationists have, those who don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit, they think they died out with the apostles, is this argument right here. Is why is it we see them batting 100, you know, 100 out of 100, they're always getting healed. They're batting 1,000, rather. And then why is it towards the end of the apostolic ministry, people start getting sick, and now it's not as common, so it's going to trickle out. That's the best argument they have. So if you want to, you know, ask me what's the best argument a cessationist has, that, it's that. It's nowhere in Scripture taught. It would just be inferred because more and more people are getting sick as time goes on. But that is not a good argument to me because while that's happening, still awesome miracles are happening. And we even have have reports of them into the third and fourth century, like Augustine reports a lot of miracles happening because he used to disbelieve them as a Christian. He was a cessationist, but he changed his mind as a Christian later on in life because he started reporting on them, and he reported like there was like over 70 or 80 just in the few years he started doing his research. And Dr. Michael Brown has a great book on this, uh, Israel's Divine Healer, and he talks about how this is the promise of God in the Old Testament being fulfilled in Christ. You know, the Spirit of God coming upon sons and daughters. We should expect this to happen. The uh, the great commissions of Matthew 28 and Mark 16 do not have expiration dates, okay? The authority he did give the 72 when he sent them out doesn't have an expiration date. So we should take it very seriously. But you have to reconcile it. The question will be posed to you at some point. Do you believe in, in healing? You're going to say yes because it's in the atonement. By his stripes, we are healed. It's as clear as day. And then you're going to have to say why, and they ask you, why are people still sick and why doesn't everybody get healed? You're going to have to answer that. For me, I'm going to say faith. I'll never say it's the will of God. That is how I believe. So he gets healed. He goes and, uh, you know, he gets healed. He stands up. He starts jumping all around and everybody sees him. Verse 11, in Lystra, by the way, if you forgot where we're at, this is in Lystra. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So now this is what we're going to call revival. Someone is saved. Everybody's coming out to them. They have one little slight problem, though. It's a revival for Zeus and Hermes, not a revival for Jesus Christ, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now when the apostles, now notice this plural, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, right? So now I want to show you there's multiple apostles here, Paul and Barnabas. They tore their clothes, rushed out into the crowd, shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And let me just say, share this right here. This is why this can't be the Roman Catholic handbook. This is the Pentecostal handbook because they would say, yes, let's venerate this saint. To become a saint, you have to show, uh, you have to have it proven in your life you've had verifiable miracles. And so the saints would love to be treated like this. The Pope would love to have a wreath put around him and to be, you know, hoisted up. Of course, you know, switch the name around a little bit, but yeah, treat me like a god. This is the right thing to do. Uh, you know, make a statue of me. Leave it here. Make a statue of the apostles. But see, this is not the Roman Catholic handbook. They are very clear. We, we didn't do this in our own power. There's nothing more holy about us. And they even said that before. Nothing of our holiness did this. Remember when Peter and them were saying that? There's nothing of our own righteousness that brought this about us, not because of us being some superhuman person. We're just like you, friends. Why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. 
Why are you bringing, uh, excuse me, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now notice this. This is Paul's way of preaching to the Gentiles. He'll do this again on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. I love how he does this. This is why he was the apostle to the Gentiles. They were so downtrodden and, and um, subjected to the verbal abuse of the Jewish people. You could almost think of the Jewish people at this time of, at, like the Westboro Baptists. You're all going to hell. You're all pagans. We're going to rule over you. You know, the, Calling even a half-Jew, the Samaritans, dogs, you know, which would be like the cuss word of what we would call somebody a bee. I mean, calling them a dog would be like calling somebody a bee. I mean, they were so rude and disrespectful to them, okay? And so here we see that Paul uplifts them. Paul says to them, in the past, God let all the nations, he let them go their own way, yet he has not let himself without a testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with the plenty of food and fills you, fills your hearts with joy. You see now how he shows them, Lawrence, that all that they've been attributed to their pagan deities is really our God, and our God loves them. Our God cares for them. How do I know this is love? Because the Bible says this is the love of Jesus. This is the love of the Father that Jesus says that He sends His mercy to the wicked and He gives them rain. Remember, that's tied to the discussion of God loving the nations, God loving even the evil, that He even treats His enemies well, that He lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. This is tied into the heart of God so loving the world. Here, Paul is making this applicable now to the Gentiles. This is going to be very similar to what he's going to say in Acts chapter 17. You know, he's even going to quote, one of their poets, you know, one of your poets say this, one of your philosophers say this, in him we live and move and have our being. We are God's offspring, but we shouldn't worship him like this, you know? And then what Paul did in Acts 17, we'll get there, is he points to a God that they said, we don't even know who this God is. He says, the God you don't know is the God I'm telling you about. This is the real God. And there's a whole story behind the unknown God statue there, and we'll get into that. And this is also reminiscent of Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 2. Uh, as well as Romans 1 and 2, about how God has a plan for the nations and how he hasn't left them without a witness. Let's go there to Romans chapter 2, the verse 13. I think we have the time, and this will be beneficial. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature, excuse me, who do not have the law for themselves, uh, let me say this, I scrolled up, sorry. Who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law. They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. So this is that big question that we have to answer. What happened to them when they died? without hearing the gospel? Were they judged because of the curse of them walking away from Noah's generation without the truth? Because we know the whole world started over again with Noah and his children. And so now wherever these pagans have come from, they have come from the lineage of Noah's people. 
So do we say they are cursed because of that? They have chosen the way of wickedness. The gospel has not reached them. Uh, whatever they might have known from the Jews, if they didn't accept and become a God-fearer, uh, now that's part of their judgment as well. And so they go, all pagans go to hell. Aristotle is in hell. Plato is in hell. All of them are in hell. Is that what we're going to say? Or are we going to say that possibly there was a way of salvation through the conscience that Christ would atone for? So it's still Christ's atonement. We're not believing in universalism, an atone, a salvation outside of Christ. And even though there are some Christian universalists that Christ died for everybody, but let me just hold to this thought right now, that Christ's atonement was for them, and by them believing whatever was revealed to them by the Holy Spirit in their conscience, that God will give them Mercy on Judgment Day. That's really all it comes down to. Now, I've always given you that third, not always, but I've, I've, I've provided before, but I always like to give it, uh, and I've mentioned it, I know, at least once here, is that there's another way that possibly, if they truly would have had that heart of a con that, that right heart um, and a clear conscience, that God would have sent them somebody and then thus would have been saved. But it still reverts back to the first point. So either they are a God-fearer, Christian, something of confessing the covenant, whatever covenant they're in. You know, so they're confessing the old covenant or the new covenant, and that's the only way in. Or was there a way in based on the limited revelation that they had? Now, where do I settle on this? I settle on the limited revelation view. And that's, and that's okay if you disagree with it. It's not an easy view to agree with. Uh, some people feel it's too close to a universalism. Sometimes people feel that it's, you know, uh, it's almost like uh, making things worse to go preach the gospel. Uh, and that's what James White always says as a Reformed guy. He, he sends them all to hell. But then again, he sends everybody to hell based on God's choice anyway, so that's not a problem to him, you know. So God just let a bunch of people be created just to send them to hell, and it was never even going to, they were never even going to have a chance, right? Uh, but but that's, not, um, that's not something that I'm going to be okay with. But then what he'll say back to what we believe is he'll say, well, then why even go preach the gospel? Because if everybody can already be saved based on their conscience, then don't even go preach the gospel. They'll probably have a better chance of being saved by the conscience than actually hearing the full story because then if they reject it, now you know for sure they're, they're lost. But I don't think it's as easy as that. I believe that those who have received it in part through their conscience will always receive the gospel. And that's why God sends them more light. And that's why we do see stories in the Bible like a Cornelius, the God-fearers. And I believe that they get the more light and God sends it to them, okay? And so there's a book written, Eternity in Their Hearts, where it sometimes talks about the more light coming through dreams and the prophets of their own people actually having revelations that we would consider not divine in the sense of Scripture, but like... Uh, a true to what we would we would consider biblical. So they get a dream, and they come and tell it to their people as a prophet, quote unquote. And God uses it to guide them away from. Um the path of paganism and animism and all these things. And that's actually what's going to happen when we get to Acts 17, is that the unknown God's story comes from someone getting a revelation not to worship all the other gods and to plead the mercy of an unknown God. And I think I've mentioned that to you guys before. So you guys have to decide where you're going to settle on, on that. And let me just say this, because I'm going to deal with a couple things this Sunday coming up on, you know, a question like this, you know, what, what answer it is, we don't know, and I'm going to leave it to the people to decide. And let me always just tell you this, in the areas of the Bible that are silent, we should have no problem being silent. It's okay if we still have mysteries in our scriptures. It's okay. We trust God that he's always going to do what's right. So even if James was right, white is right, and they all go to hell, I'm going to be okay with that because I'm going to have a revelation of that when I go to heaven. I'll know it better than I know now. Highly doubt that is what's going to happen, but even if that scenario did did happen, I would know more, and God would give me the trust and that 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 
that characteristic of his judgment, right? And the same thing with James White. If I'm right, he'll understand what I'm saying, and it wasn't universalism, okay? So when, and when the Bible is silent, it's okay to be silent, and make sure you let people know there's a difference between uh, the, the doctrinal teachings which come in the clear black and white scriptures or the things that we have to make reference and allusions to, uh, uh, make an um, allusion, not a, isn't it a, allude to. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so but, but here's another thing. I love this, and I, and I want to teach it to you as well. Another theologian said, it's not the things that I don't understand that bother me. It's the things I do understand about the Bible that bother me. So when you really wrestle with the things of the Bible, it's going to be, trust me, the things you know. You know there's an eternal hell. You're going to wrestle with that when you start thinking about the people you know who rejected the gospel and went there. Like Mahatma Gandhi He's probably in hell, right? Like if he didn't repent and didn't change his ways, he's in hell. That's tough to wrestle with how that happened. You know, he was such a nice, nice guy, did a lot of things based on what we would say Christian values, but could be in hell. You know, those are the kinds of things that you're going to have to wrestle with. Evil affecting children as sickness upon the body. That may be very tough to wrestle with, okay? So once again, it's not going to be the things you don't know. These things you don't know, either way, I trust God. Trust me, as you go through life, it will be okay. It's going to be the things you do know that you wrestle with that will bother you until you come to that place of trust. And I've come to that place of trust. Just for example, uh, Jared uh, put up a video on our page about Jack Deere who came to the Pentecostal faith from the Dallas Seminary background. And uh, one of his books that I always like to recommend to non-Pentecostals is Surprised by the Spirit. And that was an apologetic book for the Pentecostal worldview, charismatic worldview, back when I was in Bible college. So I still like to share that with people. But uh, this man's father committed suicide and his 20-year-old son committed suicide. You want to talk about a rough life. And the, and the way he talks about losing his son is just absolutely devastating. Well, the thing that was the most devastating to him is that he felt that it would never happen because God promised him that his son would serve the Lord. The backslider would come home, raise up the child in the ways they should go, and they'll never depart. You see, and that tormented him. That bothered him. But you see, by God's grace, not saying I've been through the situation or I can understand what he went through, but please, I'm just saying by God's grace, that doesn't torment me anymore, though it once did when I lost my sister to drinking and driving and began to literally think to myself, she could be in that place I'm talking about all the time. You know, I'm always talking about hell on Bourbon Street. I'm very serious about it. People will go there. And I'm like thinking to myself, my sister whom I love could be there literally right now, okay? That was troublesome. But as I resolve the trouble with the doctrine and the trust in God, my heart is at peace. And here's how I resolve it. God loves them more than I love them. And he loved Adam more than I loved Adam. He loved Judas more than I would ever love Judas. He loves my sister, my daughter. And ultimately, he gave them a choice. So there is no surefire way that violates the will of someone else to bring them to heaven. God didn't even violate the will of Adam right? So if he didn't violate the will of Adam, how can I ensure that my child never is going to depart? What the proverb is speaking is in a generality. When you teach them this, they will not depart, and you can add in the footnote, when they make the choice to remain. When they make that choice to remain. And so I can look at my life. I was a backslider, and I came back, but if I would have died in between that time, I would have gone to hell, 
And I know for sure it was my choice. And my mom would have stood on that promise and still would have been right. Like I told her with, Lee, uh, with my sister Jenny, you did stand on the promise and God kept his word to you. She never departed. I'll say it like this even if I want to stretch it a little bit. She never departed from the conviction of what she was taught. She knew it her whole life. See, in that sense, never departed. We'd still be you know, a part of that interpretation. But let's just say we're going to take it straightforward. They'll never be lost. Okay, they'll never depart and be lost. Well, well, God can't promise that in the sense uh, of everybody going to heaven if you do X, Y, and Z, because God never even did that for us or for the creation that he made. So if God didn't do that for Adam, how is he going to do it for your daughter? So your heart can be at rest and say, when this promise comes forth, what it means is every possible opportunity will be given to them. And if you want to stretch it a little bit, you could say they won't depart from the conviction of that faith. And I believe that is true. They will walk, uh, they will go to their grave with the conviction of that faith. Amen? And so those are answering some tough questions there. Now, having said all of that, Paul is preaching to them what we do know. And what we do know is this, God loves the nations. Even in his promise to Abraham, he said that Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. Now this is that promise coming to fulfillment, the nations are getting saved. Verse 18, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. So even though he said, we're not gods, we're serving God, uh, it was still hard for them to say, hey, but can we, uh, can we still kill this animal and just pretend you're a god or something? It was hard for them because they were pagans, right? But then some of them did convert, okay? Now watch this. What happens? These Jews caused the problems. The Jews came from, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, one of the places they had just been, and won the crowd over. Now watch what happens in two verses. Dude, this will blow your mind. You could just say, uh, you could just uh, preach a sermon on this uh, in between two verses, you know, or in between a verse. They literally went from wanting to sacrifice to them as gods to being deceived by the Jews who refused to believe back in the early part of this chapter to now being won over to the lies of the Jewish people. So they must have been convincing. In verse, and, and the next part here of that verse, they then stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. So literally between verse 18 and 19, we could say between the verse, or some, you guys come up with a way to make it sound cool, right? But between the verse, what in the world happens here? They are turned over to this. Now, uh, this light, that kind of reminds you of Jesus in Jerusalem, right? When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, everybody's laying down the palm branches, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the next thing, they're shouting out to Pilate, release, give us Barabbas and crucify him. That's exactly what happened here. And so they stone Paul. They think he's dead. And he probably is dead. We don't know for sure what actually happens here. Um, one of the things that we believe is uh, what he references in 2 Corinthians 12 is when he goes to the third heavens, that this is when he goes there in this vision while he is either dead or on the brink of death. Either way, his resuscitation is a miracle. If he was not dead, it's a miracle because for them to stone you and to think you're dead and drag you out of a city, he had to be bleeding and broken everywhere. You know, face, uh, a cranium uh, bone here had to be broken. Ribs, jawbone, you know, they're just stoning you, right? It's a vicious way to die. And then they think you're dead, so you must be bleeding everywhere. And they, like I said, they drag him out, and you know, so either he was, uh, what we would say, not clinically dead, and he resuscitates, but God does the miracle of healing his body from the immense abuse he just had, or he was literally dead and then gets resurrected and then healed 
from all of the things that he had just suffered. Okay, and that's why we go to verse 20. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up, went back into the city, goes right back there, and then the next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. So he's like, I'm out of here. But he did go back in one more day. Uh, it says they gathered around him. doesn't say they prayed, so we don't know if they were part of what happened when he got resurrected and the miracle happened. Well, we know a miracle happened there. Verse 21, they preached the gospel in that city, talking about Derby, and won a large number of disciples. What were they called? Disciples. Won a large number of what? Disciples. What do we go make of the nations? Disciples. That's what we do. See, do you find yourself in the book of Acts? You do. Pentecostal handbook. Then they return to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Now they're going back, okay? So if we go up here to the map, uh, Derby is the turning point uh, right there, and then now they come back. And so that's how it makes sense because, once again, if you think they're going back to Antioch here, and then they arrive at Antioch later on, you're like, how did that just happen? I thought you were already in Antioch. Um, and, and now you know why, because there's two Antiochs. They're not going back to the original Antioch that they had left from. They're going back to the Antioch in the other region. Does that make sense? Okay, because if you pay attention to the places like I had done in the past, it gets confusing very quickly. They preach. They, go, uh, they win a larger number of disciples. They return to Lystria, Iconium, and Antioch. Now watch this, verse 22. Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. See, can't be a Calvinistic book. This has to be the Arminian book. This has to be a book that says it's your choice to remain. Isn't it your choice? Those who remain in me and abide in me. How many times does he say the word abide in John 15? Abide in me and I will abide in you. If you do not abide in me and my words do not abide in you, you will be cut off, thrown into the fire, right? Does everybody remember that? Okay, I'm only getting a half an amen from a few of you. Maybe two amens, two full amens and a half amen. I want everybody saying amen. Look at John 15, and, and tie in the word there, tie in the word remain, remain is key. Once again, this shows Paul's understanding of the Gospels before the Gospels were written. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me. As I also remain in you, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you, what? Remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away wither. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Isn't that something? The same terminology. Look at it again there in verse 22. Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to what? Oh, come on. I need a better one than that. Thank you, my brother. Encouraging them to remain true to the faith. So somebody commented on our Facebook video and said, oh, these things you say are so nice, but then you go and teach people who can lose their salvation. What is this, a game that I'm in one minute and out the next? You know, are we saved by works? And I wrote her a nice little response. You can see it. Did you notice it? And I write that response teaching them, no, 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 no. We don't believe in salvation by works. I'm not saved by works and I don't leave. I'm not saved by good works and I don't get out by bad works. I come in by faith and I leave by unbelief, lack of faith. That's what Jesus said. Isn't that exactly what he said? 
If you don't remain in me, if you're not remaining in belief, if you're not remaining in the vine, you're cut off. That's your choice. God is not a divine kidnapper. I always say that. When we come into faith, he doesn't deadbolt the door, lock it, and then throw away the key and say, you can't leave. And this is exactly the same terminology that Paul uses in Romans chapter 11 when he talks about the Gentiles being engrafted into the vine. Oh, let me just go there right now. And then he talks about them, uh, the Jews, being taken out because they were not in belief. And then he says, don't get prideful, Gentiles, that now you've been brought in. Watch this. It says, granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. Romans 11.20. They were broken off because of what? Because they sinned? Because they did a bunch of bad things? No. Why were they broken off? Because of unbelief. Thank you. And you stand by what? Good works? Going to church? Speaking in tongues? Come on, somebody. You stand by faith, but don't be arrogant. Tremble, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you what? Continue in his kindness. Doesn't continue? Come with the same connotations as remain and abide which remain and abide are are translated from the same Greek word, by the way. Some translations say remain, some translations say abide. Uh, So you remain, continue, abide in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. And if they do not persist in what? Unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So can backsliders come back? Yes, they can slide on back to faith. Come back, amen? This is a powerful understanding of the Pentecostal handbook. This is the doctrine that we teach. This is our understanding of it, okay? Strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Now this is what Paul says, verse 22 here. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. So they taught them that, guys, don't take it, light, uh, don't take it as a surprise when troubles come your way. That's what Peter said. Don't think that something strange is happening to you. These come for the perfecting of your faith, the strengthening of your faith. You will go through many hardships. But Jesus said that he's overcome the world, so don't be discouraged. Amen? Don't be overcome by the world. Overcome the world with your faith. Because the Bible says, who overcomes the world? Those who believe Jesus is the Son of God. You are an overcomer. The faith that is inside of you, given by the Word of God, your ability to trust in it. We'll talk about that was a choice you made. It's counted as your faith now. Just like your love is counted as your love, even though it was awakened by God's love first. He initiates it. But now you must hold on to it. Hold on to the faith. And that is what the Bible says is the fight of faith. Fight to keep the faith. Guard your heart in another way. The Bible says it. Guard what goes in. Because that can affect how you look at the world and how you look at God, okay? Verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord and whom they had put their trust, okay? See, they had put their trust. Would it surprise you that the word trust there is the same word for faith, pistis, and that actually the King James and other versions say faith there? Does that surprise you at all? No, why would that be surprising? Because because that's exactly what trust means. Trust means faith. Trust means faith. Some may say pistuo. Let me show it to you here so you can see. We'll go here. Appointed elders and fast in whom they had put their trust. Pistuo, right there. That's it. And I don't like how this is coming up now. I can't get it off, but the Greek follows me there now. But uh, that's the Greek word from pistis. 
pistuo, to believe. There it is. So uh, they believed. And if I go to another version of the Bible, you'll see some translators put the word faith there. They had put their faith. They had believed. Okay? So it was their choice. It was their choice to believe. And what is believe? To believe is trust. Do I initiate my trust in God? Do I initiate my faith in God? No, I don't initiate my faith just like I don't initiate my love. I love him because he first loved me. I have faith in him because his word came to me. But I make the choice. I can be like the Jews early in the chapter and refuse to believe and try to go off and deceive others. I can do that. People do that all the time. Bart Ehrman did that, okay? Went to Moody Bible Institute and disbelieved. Now tries to get other people to disbelieve. But that doesn't change the truth because the Bible says he can't deny himself. The truth is the truth whether we accept it or not not. But when we accept it, faith is not a work, but it's accounted to us as righteousness. So never let someone get you to think that faith is a work, because they'll say, well, if Christians, uh, if sinners can't do any good work to save themselves, and now you're saying the difference between you and a sinner that goes to hell is your belief, then that means that's a work you did that the sinner didn't, so congratulations, you get attributed a good work to you, and that's why you're saved. But we go, all right, hold on. Is faith a work according to the Bible? Is faith a work according to the Bible, yes or no? No, faith is not a work according to the Bible. That's why, once again, this cannot be the Calvinistic uh, handbook. It has to be the Arminian Pentecostal handbook. So it says here about faith, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, verse 4, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. Verse 5, however, to the one who does not work, but what? Trust God, same Greek word. Do you see it right there? Pestuio. But trust God who justifies the ungodly, their faith. Whose faith? Their faith. Is it, the, is it God's faith forced, forced upon them? No, God's love initiates our love. God's faith initiates our faith, but it's still our faith. It's our love. Love God with all your heart. I am not God. I, am, I do not believe in monism. I do not believe that we are of God in same substance. So that means I have a separate identity from God. Though all I have comes from him, I am separate from him. Are you understanding me? Okay, I do believe in substance dualism, but I believe idealism explains it a little bit better, but I don't go as far as monism, which believes everything is mono, one thing. Okay, that is not true. So my faith is not God's faith. It's initiated by God's word. My love is not God's love, even though it's initiated by God's love. Are you listening? Okay. Their faith is credited to them as righteousness. Now he even makes it more clear. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will not count against them. This is the faith that these brothers had. They put their trust in God. That was their trust to give. It was their faith to give. But where did their faith come from? Where was it initiated from? Where was the drawing, in other words, from the Father, by the Holy Spirit through the Word of Christ? Amen? They commit them to the Lord in verse 24. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Pergia, they went down to Attilia. From Antilia, they sailed back to Antioch, which is the other Antioch. Antioch where? Antioch. Syria, thank you, where they had been committed to the grace, uh, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they now completed. 
See, they completed their work. Did John Mark complete the work that he was committed to do, that he committed to do? No, he did not. He left halfway through the trip, the last chapter, didn't he? And that's why there's going to be a problem that comes between Paul and Barnabas because Barnabas wants to take his cousin along with them and say it's cool, you know. But it wasn't cool. He needed more training. He needed more 201 or 101, in other words. And how do I know Paul was right? Because the... the, Work of the apostles, the acts of the apostles follows Paul. I think that just pretty much settles it. Why would God follow the one in pride, the one with all the issues, right? But then John Mark is restored by Paul later on. You see that in an epistle. He says, bring John Mark with you. Uh, he's helpful to me. Or was that? Is that a Timothy? Yeah, look at that, please. It says, uh, on arriving there, talking about Antioch, they gathered the church together, reported all that God had done through them, and now... Had, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with who? The disciples. Wow, isn't that powerful? Here's a suggested timeline. Uh, it's, it's obviously suggestion. We don't know specifically every single date, but I like to put where we're at right now, right at around 49 A.D. Uh, we're going to get into the Jerusalem Council in the next chapter, and I believe Galatians is written before Uh, the Jerusalem Council, to the churches he had just ministered in. And that's why I believe when we get to the Jerusalem Council, Peter is on his side, but in the book of Galatians, he's still having to rebuke Peter. You can study this out through other commentaries, and they can explain to you why they may think Galatians is written after the council, and then they'll put uh, 1 Thessalonians as the first uh, book that was written, okay? Uh, But that's just the way I see it. I think it fits best in with what uh, happened in the book of Acts as we just realized it because now all these Jews are getting saved as well as Gentiles so that you can see a conflict is going to start coming and they have to start resolving it and Paul's on the right side of this and Peter's really not and then it's going to blow up here in the next chapter and then as they go to settle it with the with the leaders we're now going to see that Peter's on his side and it's a real uh, like smooth understanding between him and Peter as they're helping everybody else understand. I think if Galatians had been... Um, not written, or if he had not confronted Peter already, I should say, I think him and Peter would be, it would be showing that him and Peter were in conflict, but him and Peter were not in conflict. So that's, that's my personal opinion there. So let's get a good summary of the book here. Sometimes in our greatest victories, we will face our greatest challenges. Like we saw, they see a man healed. And you're thinking, man, this is awesome. This is revival. But then all of a sudden, they start wanting to attribute them as, you know, think they're pagan deities. And then once they finally get that to stop, Jews come and create another problem. And now they're getting stoned. So what, what we learned from this is sometimes our greatest vict- in our greatest victories, we will face our greatest challenges. Let us remain faithful to the Lord at all times so that he might make us fruitful. Amen. And uh, once again, you can see uh, we know that this is not the Calvinistic book. We know it's an Arminian book. We know it's not a Baptist or cessationist book. We know it's a Pentecostal book, right? And we also know that it is not a um, congregational book government church style book. It is a Presbyterian government style church book. So how should the churches be run? By the congregations voting in their leaders or by leaders appointing their elders to be over them? See, leaders appoint your leaders over you. That is how the church is to be done. That's why it says they appointed the leaders. So uh, we see now what's happening is Paul and Barnabas are known as apostles, but now they're appointing elders, and we see that in 1 Timothy and also in Titus. So we're going to see the church government go from just being the gifts 
the fivefold ministry gifts, to now to the offices, and then the offices will then host the fivefold ministry gifts, okay? So at first, there's just apostles, and then there's going to be prophets, as we've seen, and then there's teachers, right? And then they need some help, so they make deacons. That's an office. That's not something that God just hands you the gift of being a deacon, like he did that with being a prophet. You can't choose whether or not you're a prophet, but you can be chosen to be a uh, um, a deacon. I can't choose you to go be an apostle or something, right? Or a teacher. I can't give you that gift. Or a prophet. God has to give you that gift, right? But I can see whether or not you can be a deacon, okay? So now we kind of have like these five-fold ministry gifts working with the deacons. But as they begin to grow, they realize not everybody is going to have this same kind of anointing, the five-fold ministry gift. So we need a term that we're going to call who's in charge. So they say, we're going to call those people elders, going back to the Old Testament version with Moses, the elders over the tribes of Israel, okay? And so now the elders are going to be spiritually gifted too. Some of them may be apostles. Some of them may be prophets. Peter will tell us in, in, at the end of his life to when he talks to the elders, we know he's an apostle, but he'll say, as a fellow elder. So he's now going to say that this probably is a better way of looking at me than just by my gift. It's going to be better to look at my office. And so that's why in our church we see the fullness of the, what transpired over this history is that the offices will be where the gifted people serve. So I may have all of these gifts, but how do I get to serve and use them in the church? I get appointed to the office of elder or deacon. Now, how do I get appointed to those offices? Do I get appointed by group vote, or do I get appointed by other elders and deacons, by the ones in charge? So it's not quite a democracy. This is more of like... um, it's, it's, it's a theocracy, obviously. A church is a theocracy. We don't want to be shy away from that. It's run by Jesus and his word. But the, the way that the elders are appointed, are appointed it's more like a, um, oh, what's that kind of government form? Uh, it's more like a senate, senate, like the Senate of Rome. Now, it may be a republic, but I don't know if a republic you get to vote in your officials. See if, look up a republic a government style of a republic. But whatever secular form it it models, it doesn't matter. It's the Bible. We have to go by it. So I don't care what form it models in the world. It's just, it's good to reference something like that. I do personally believe that governmental um, forms of democracy, of government in the, the natural are good. But in the church, we have to run by this government. And so we follow the tradition of our elders. We, we have the Holy Spirit and so forth. And so we as elders appoint other elders. That's the way it should be done. And that's the way it was done here. If you show me them voting in elders, we'll have a vote and decide whether or not I'm an elder or you're an elder. You know. Okay. Okay, and I know that's why we have a republic. I mean, you know, the republic for which it stands. But I didn't know if we had a different kind of a republic. Okay, so America, by definition, is a republic. It's, I don't think it's, quote, unquote, a democracy in that sense because democracy strictly is everything is done by vote, where um, not everything is done by vote. The things are done in a republic sense by our leaders. We vote the leaders, though, but then the leaders make the actual laws. Uh, I wonder if there is a, a secular governmental form that, um, that is similar to what we do in the church, where leaders appoint other leaders. It probably would be a monarchy of some kind, wouldn't it? Similar. It probably would be, because a monarchy appoints, uh, no, no, yeah, appoints dukes and all of that. Yeah, but I'm not talking about the details. I'm talking about the actual structure of the leadership a hierarchy, and it would probably be like a monarchy because we have a king. Our king has a law book. 
He appoints the leaders, and that goes all the way back to the original apostles. Those are his dukes. Those are his whatever, you know. We call them apostles, and we're comparing it to secular government. And then those now appoint the next ones. So that's how it's done. If you want to look at an ancient form of this, that's where you look to the, the Greek Orthodox Church. The Greek Orthodox Church is the first church by definition. They, they have lasted the longest, okay? But they added traditions like the Catholics over time. But they outlast the Catholics because the Catholics changed, and then they had the Great Schism in 1000 uh, AD. Uh, but they represent how they look at their bishops, their elders, their patriarchs, and so forth. They represent that kind of uh, uh, ancient faith in a great way. If you t- like I'm saying, if you strip away all the other junk, and if you just look at how they're running things through their bishops, that's why you see the Russian Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, because that's their regions, and then they have their bishops over those regions, and they're appointed by the other bishops. So that, that would be the best way to see it today. But because they've added on all of those other things, we think of them in a bad light, you know. Um, but we are Presbyterian in our model. But when you hear the word Presbyterian, you think of the Calvinist guys who come from John Knox in Scotland and all of that. But that's, that's not what the word means. Presbyterias is the word of elder, okay. So let me go here, uh, and you can see uh, the word elder here, if I already have it up. Do I have Axia? So uh, the elders, appointed elders, uh, Presbyterios. You see it right there? Do you guys know your Greek? Are you starting to learn Greek? What is, what is the letter that looks like pi? P. What is the letter that looks like uh, P? R. So that's P-R. E looks like E. That's an S. Press. What does the B looking symbol look like? What is that? B. Press. B. Press, buh, tear, tear, os, presbyteros. Does everybody see that? So that's where we get the Presbyterian model. Episcopos is another word that is interchangeable with elder. That is the word bishop. But bishop and elder are not talking about different positions in the church, as some people have tried to make them out to be. It's uh, just another term. Like we would say leader or we would say uh, boss or, or something like that would be like similar terms. Like I'm like, who's the leader here? I mean the boss, something like that. So they're used interchangeable in the Bible because they had the same meaning to the people back then. Uh, what's another word for leader? Give me another word other than boss. Supervisor, there you go. Or boss and supervisor would be relative terms there. And so here you see, um, it says, I told you to appoint elders in every town. An elder must be blameless, so forth, right? So you see like how it does that. And then he says here, um, then it's going to change here to, um, it's right, I think it's actually right here, but they translate the same word. Let me show you here. Yeah, presbyterios, and then right here, let me go here, and this is, I don't know why it's saying that's tis. What is that, what is that doing that for? Let me go to my interlinear here real quick. I don't know why it's doing that. Okay, Presbyterios and Overseer. There it is. Okay. So there it is. Episcopon. Episcopon. Episcopos. Isn't that what I said before when I talked about that? Yep. 
Now, that's where, what, what denomination sounds like episkopos, episcopalian, exactly, presbyterian, presbyteros, right? Uh, presbyterian is, is the English word, episcopal, uh, well, which we just call it bishop or overseer, which I don't know why it doesn't translate as, as clear as presbyterian does for presbyteros, whatever. Um, but some Greek words stay true in English, and other times they just totally change it around, you know? Nancy's Greek word is athanasia. That's her name in Greek. So, but then you have people that have really sim like similar names in Greek that will keep it that way. Like Sophia is Sophia. Sophia is a Greek word. What does Sophia mean in Greek? My niece is named Sophia. What does that mean? Philosophia. Wisdom. Wisdom, right? Okay. A lot to take in there. Church government was just brought up there. Isn't that amazing? So we believe in a Presbyterian Presbyterian. Presbyterian <laughs> All these words stuck in my head now. A Presbyterian form of government. Let us pray. Father, help us to lead the church through the elders and the deacons to preach, pray, and plug away. Even in the times of persecution, may we not get discouraged. Be with our brothers and sisters even now as they suffer persecution in 1040 window, Southeast Asia, China, even in America, Lord, where our rights are being taken away. Help us to continue to serve you. Lord, may signs and wonders follow the preaching of the word as it did in the times of the apostles. And may, Lord, those who have accepted you remain true to you, Lord. Remain in faith, God. Continue in faith, living out their faith. And bless us today as we continue on in the faith. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.